welcome back to the Lightfoot Podcast. This week, Miriam and I take a deep dive into her experience of cultivating 10 years of integrally informed, intentional community. We unpack both what helped and hindered the group from crystallizing their vision of a sustained state of high-level communitas. Miriam also shares some of her insight into what kind of psycho-spiritual work can help prepare us for deeply communal contexts and how best we can experience a more full sense of connection, safety, and love in our relationships. She also offers guidance around how best to combine the wisdom of both the chalice and the blade in our efforts to hold space for others as they unfold along the path. I learned a lot in this exchange and feel really grateful to have shared in the conversation together. So without further ado, I bring you Miriam Martineau. Miriam, welcome to the Lightfoot Podcast. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled. Yes. And oh gosh, there's so many exciting and interesting things I want to talk to you about. I think the way I'm going to kick us off is just lay out this kind of hypothesis that I've been working with in my own adventures and studies and writings over the last year and, and, and maybe get your reflections and kind of bounce off from there if that sounds okay. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, so I've kind of been working on the assumptions that we need to rediscover how to be in deep and regenerative community together, or else we won't be able to heal our wider culture and systems. So that's kind of point number one. And then from that, I've made the kind of leap that to do this, it's probably ideal not to start off in wholly residential communities unless they have a kind of monastic setting to them. As in my experience, it gets really sticky in lots of different ways and could potentially drive us further apart than together when we're in, you know, or we're farming the land or we're buying land together straight away my experience traveling around the world and and experiencing these communities was like, wow, that seems almost like an added stress that when it works in its own way is incredibly beautiful and is maybe an end goal. But um, yeah, I reached this point of like, maybe we need to start with a, with a a more gentle system of, of connecting together while still living in our own homes and doing personal integration work. And then the final part to this little three part hypothesis is that in order to really rediscover each other we each seem to need to do deep inner work to prepare ourselves which is ongoing and this process of psychological integration and relational healing often as a result of our own developmental trauma that we picked up in childhood and from the cultural superego is an ongoing process that really benefits from doing that together because a lot of this is kind of relational neuroses that we've picked up along the way so yeah i'll just summarize quickly and then and get your thoughts on that and i really want to you know challenge some of these specifically because it sounds you're someone that seems to have had a really potent 10-year experience of lived intentional community which kind of challenges these hypotheses a bit so coming together in community maybe it's better to not start living together and then the third one is that it's all got to be based around the inner work if it's going to kind of be sustainable over the long term. So yeah, what comes up for you in, in, after that little spiel? So the first word actually that arises as I'm listening to those three together is mm-hmm. disownment because mm. I think um, 
discernment and either lack of it or not sufficient or sufficient discernment will actually sway the answer to your hypothesis slightly differently. Hmm. So um, maybe I'll say a few things on that. I think if you just bring together a random group of people, then you could be asking for a lot of chaos. Maybe not, right? You could be happily surprised, but definitely the risk would be a lot higher. But the more you do discernment up front and actually have a real sense that people's capacity and maturity and self-awareness is at least sufficient for this kind of experiment or endeavor, the more you could, um, you, you, you actually could make it work in residence or actually living together. The other piece of that is, you know, in, in all my experiencing of people, it ta- I like to take at least a year to really discern someone else, and I'm assuming for them to discern me. So to witness each other through at least four seasons And I don't say this as a rule, um, because I think it can always be different. And it depends how much time you spend together in that year. But what I am saying is we tend to show our best side when we first meet another person. Um, And, you know, that honeymoon phase of whether you're on a retreat or a seminar, we used to run these six week courses. And the first three weeks, it was it was the honeymoon phase. And we over time could see this pattern that by week four, things would fall apart a bit. And mm-hmm. then usually the group would actually be willing and, and and we'd facilitate it that they could move through that. And then there'd be this incredible deepening. Um, so, and I used to, I remember in my 20s, I used to meet people and my tendency is always to project in a way um, maybe more capacity onto people than they have. And so then I started noticing that as a pattern in myself and started really feeling like I need to just give it time and let the human be the human through ups and downs. So so there's something around upfront discernment that would allow, um, you know, an initiative to know is this, is this the right configuration to actually dive into daily life together? And then there's the ongoing discernment where you might sort of put your toes in that or take a few steps in that direction, but then see the first three months or six months or even just a month or a year as an ongoing journey of discernment. Because I think some of the deeper trauma, some of the shadows, some of the developmental trip ups, they just won't show up, you know, on the first few days or weeks or in the initial excitement or that like that honeymoon phase. Um, that being said, we also noticed, so in our decade of community living, we had, the setup was we have a large house with a lot of rooms, so people would have their own rooms, but it would be communal kitchen, communal living room, communal gardening, I mean, a lot of time together on a large acreage, but still a lot of time together, and then a few cabins spread around, and we noticed that um, there's also a you can kind of speed up the process if you live together with people. Now you might not always want to do that. um, But we did this experiment in our mid mid twenties to mid thirties. And so we were up for it. And so that in a way you can save a lot of time, you know, it's a bit like when you say, if you want to get to know someone, go on a trip with them. It's kind of even more. So if you really want to get to know one another, live together. And especially if you have enough, 
healthy cultural parameters and agreements and practices. We found it was possible to do it without it getting chaotic or, you know, too troubling or messy or um, traumatizing in itself. It was actually, we ended up coming through that decade with a sense of a lot of elegance and grace. And um, it was a positive experience. It wasn't one of those experiences where it fell apart because it tripped itself up. It was actually quite a conscious decision to part ways and try different angles on this whole research of how can we find that deeper coherence amongst each other without losing our individual sovereignty. So those some initial thoughts. I know you pegged a f quite a few things, but um, that's kind of where it, I, I started. I guess. Yeah, I I want to digitally high five you and say how it seems you're in such a small minority of people that have gone through a deep, potent, multi-year communal project and come out the other side, you know, in a good place with it per se. Like, uh, yeah, that's so rare. And I, I, I'm so uh, fascinated by it. And I'd like to hear, I mean, just personally, I've, I've, um, I'm, I'm not in that position after uh, being part of a really powerful and transformational community experience over the last six years, it ended in wow, extreme fireworks that I had no idea it would go in that direction right at the peak of its cohesion, actually. Mm. And so I'm humbled by that. And I've now integrated the complex PTSD that kind of came after being at the center of that because you tend to get a bit scapegoated in that experience but um so please yeah tell me a little bit more about the morning star experience paint the picture tell the story a little bit and then maybe um yeah also share a little bit about that ending because that's that's such a rare thing so let me begin by saying i've also had other experiences that have not been as involved as 10 years living on the same um yep. you know on, on the same piece of earth together in daily life but I have had experiences where trauma has suddenly popped up and um and it's been incredibly startling painful and humbling so I you know I just also want to offer my my full empathy and compassion for your experience <laughs> because I know how incredibly hard so hard it can be because you really put your heart and soul mm. into these kind of things and there is probably on everybody's part, so much hope and, and, and care and a sense of we're doing this for a really important reason. Like it's not just personal, it's actually because we feel like we need to break through this glass ceiling that we have as collectives. Like individuals have made so much progress in individual development and yet as collectives we seem to stagnate and seem to always stay sort of circling around. You know, you can have really good collectives but still somehow in that sticky thing of even if it's just very subtle rivalrousness or just separateness mm. um, between people so yeah I, I think uh, a lot of us who get into these projects care so much and feel that it matters so much and so when it doesn't work the it, the, the pain is is really deep so just wanted to Thank start you. with that yeah and god humbling yeah so humbling. <laughs> um, now, to the Morning Star story, why did it work out so well? You know, there could be a good dose of luck. Um, I, it reminds me of my mother, who um, 
was often commended on her three kids, me being one of them. And people would say, you know, your kids are so lovely and wonderful. And she always said, I can't just take all the credit for it because I feel like somehow there was a lot of just blessings from who knows where. Hmm. Reminds me a little bit of that because I do feel we had very clear intentions um, and good intentions, but I do feel we were aided by a lot of grace right at the onset. And also I think we were collecting a, a bunch of people that didn't have crazy trauma, you know, like pretty integrated, wholesome, far from perfect, but good willing, um, decent people who were willing to work with the practices that we experimented with. And Was that discernment on your part or that's where the grace comes in, a bit of both? Well, I think it was both. I think we learned very early on that discernment up front is absolutely key to this happening as well as it can be. But again, I'm humbled because I've had discernment in other cases and it flew in my face. So I think it's one piece of the puzzle, but I do Mm. think there was grace. Um, And our intentions, you know, we had really a twofold main intentions for the community. And one was to live life embodied as integrally as possible, like to kind of, you know, in very simple terms, to to sort of live heaven on earth as close as we could. Um, So we had spiritual practices, but in a wide diversity, but there was a sense of let's make doing the dishes our prayer. We had a beautifying day where that day everyone would pick something just to make the community more beautiful. And it could be someone just scrubbing the stairs that hadn't been touched in a while or someone planting some flowers. And, um, but, but I think that sort of higher aspiration did create a context that put things into perspective so when there were disgruntlements or misunderstandings, it was held within this bigger frame of we're doing this, we're on a path together, we're trying to figure this out, we're trying to land something that we all feel as a resonance inside ourselves and as a potential that lives between us. Um, and then the other piece of that, so one was to actually inhabit as much as we can embody this notion of a wholesome life together on earth. And then the other one was um, coming really from a vision that my husband Stefan had had before we started the community. And it was these profound glimpses he, he'd had in, in his, in his uh, seeking um, of the potential of people coming together in daily life and moving from a state to a stage where that, that humming, that togetherness, that more than the sum total of everyone gathered actually comes alive and has a voice and a will and a guidance, um, a Mm. leadership. Um, And in the first few weeks, this is where I feel we really were hit by a big dose of grace because in the first two weeks, as we gathered that, it was a small group, maybe there was about close to 10 of us. And we had our collective practices, which were really... um, they evolved, and I can go into that later if you want, but they evolved into kind of the glue of the community. We call them sacred circles. Mm. Um, but it did feel like a presence landed in our midst. And we were maybe also just very available. You know, we were quite young, mid-20s, really had no attachments. We didn't really have jobs, nine to five. Like, we were really 
committed to this. Fresh-faced thing. young integralists changing yeah. the world. Oh, exactly. I get shivers just imagining it. <laughs> exactly, a lot, a lot of goodwill there, but also a lot of availability. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? So I think yeah. that might have helped. Also, a lot of freedom, really. Yeah. Um, and and when that happened we were so taken by it because it had been the driving vision and then suddenly there it was. And I was like, Oh my God, that was easy. You know, but then after about two weeks, it, it dissipated. And then over the years, mm. we, we'd experience it here and there. And we just got really curious about what are the ingredients? What's the recipe? How can we make this more predictable? How can we contribute to it becoming more of a prolonged, just normal way of being rather than this elevated state we get into, um, so that became an ongoing quest uh, through the 10 years. And so from state to stage was the kind mm-hmm. of broader, yeah, that's fascinating. Exactly. And could you yeah. describe it a little bit? Like what, what was it like? How did it feel? Well, what was it like mm-hmm. in your body? And like what was that state like? Yeah. So, God, it would be so interesting to have all of us together and have each person describe it because maybe mm. different descriptions, but I'll just share my own subjective experience. So, I've had a long-standing practice of contemplative prayer, mm-hmm. like which began when I was a child. So I grew up in a family that was very connected with a community in France called Tézé, mm-hmm. which is, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of a contemplative branch of Christianity um, with a big focus on reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of beautiful, immersive state experiences during that time. And anyways, it, it really became a strong thread for me is just to take time on a daily basis for that connection with whatever you want to call that um, God, source of life, light, the divine. I, I, you know, I don't really mind what the word might be, but that other, that great other or like Insert life deity go. here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and in my case, the experience of it was actually quite visceral. So, um, you know, and I've talked to my brother cause he obviously grew up in, in a similar context and, and his, his prayer life, while very committed, also has been, he, he, he sometimes said, I envy you, Miriam, that you feel it so energetically. Like when you're connected, you it's like you're immersed in it. You feel it like your whole body feels it. And mm. I said, sure, but you, on the other hand, have these really profound dreams. I mean, he literally gets guided by his dreams. And I don't. I mean, I'm sometimes mm. praying for a dream to get some <laughs> clarity on my path and it just doesn't come. So. Uh-huh. Um, that's also given me a sense that different people have different ins, you know? Mm. Um, but all that being said, when we did gather together, and so we started actually at the beginning of these community days, we would gather around some texts, like texts that felt meaningful, sacred texts, poems, that kind of thing. And we would gather once a day, um, and one of us would read the little script, and then we would just sit in silence. And now, I mean, I didn't even know about the Quakers at that time at all in those 10 years. But now I think actually there was quite a lot of similarity. We would just sit in silence and and wait until we felt moved or guided to speak. Mm. Um, and we just ended up having the most beautiful, in a way, precious in the real sense of the word, uh, conversations that felt like we were able to bring forward that which is really essential in each person. Like each each person's voice was so unique and it really felt like we entered this collective state where there was no interrupting or me against you. Like it was it was a collective listening 
for threads of truth and beauty and goodness in mm. what was being spoken. And at the end or during that, it often felt like this presence would kind of descend or arise. I mean, I don't mm. know which direction it came from, but <laughs> yeah. it, to me, it felt quite palpable energetically. Like there yeah. was an other in the space. And I know this can sound a little far out, but um, since it's connected with a direct experience, I'll, I'll just speak to it. It's like it Please. literally felt like there was an other in the space between us that did not take away from our individuality whatsoever. In fact, it actually enhanced that which makes us most unique. But it did require that that which keeps us separate from each other, so that more egoic social constructed self, what I often call just the outside self, that faded in the background. And it was, it's, you know, in, in other words, it was like we kind of brought our souls to the table. And then that allowed for this something that felt like it was made up of all of us and then more um, to come forward. And sometimes it was very subtle and sometimes it was quite palpable. Um, and so, so that happened in that practice. And then over time we refined that practice and we actually started not using scripts anymore. We would just get together sometimes daily, sometimes weekly um, in a circle with sometimes just a candle in the middle and silence, just waiting until anyone felt that, flicker or that impulse to share or speak and sometimes it could be anything it could have been um a thought a feeling that was voiced it could be an inspiration it could be a hope it could be something that was troubling someone it sometimes was even something that was difficult between one person and another and what was kind of amazing actually was to see how held in that kind of space often things that you could imagine could be quite sticky or difficult or create friction because there was such a focus on just receiving and listening and not necessarily a back and forth. Um, the, the degree of being heard and something landing and being received, it, it, it would often just resolve itself very, very swiftly. You know, so mm. it's, I say that because I think there's an efficiency to this kind of way of communicating that maybe we don't think exists or that we might underestimate, especially when we think circles, consensus, decision-making. I mean, that's sort of the op opposite sometimes of efficient communication. Mm. But this felt like getting into the right state, having yourself tuned in a way. It, For one thing, it makes it apparent what is actually important to share and what not. Mm. And that then when things are shared, um, they can, it's almost like they can pop into their right places very quickly and get sorted and move through very quickly. And sometimes we would sit together and just stay in silence for a few hours. Um, so that it wasn't, there wasn't like a way it had to go. There's other times we felt that other, um, I remember once we were gardening and it was so sweet. I mean, we're sort of spread out in the garden and then we had some music playing. And at one point, you just, you just felt something. And so I think all of us were somewhat fine-tuned to subtle, the, the subtle field, not just what's concrete in front of us, but just sort of the energy of a space. Uh, but we definitely weren't looking for it. Um, and I remember just gardening and suddenly looking up and just almost, if I could have seen, but I couldn't see it, but if I could have seen it, it almost felt like there was a film or a web or a mist mm. between us. Of, of what feels quite holy and whole and sacred. And then I looked up and the others all looked up at the same time and there was just the silent nodding or recognition of mm. 
that, whatever you might call that, in our midst. Um, so we did have some really sweet surprises mm. like that. And at the same time, one of the reasons after 10 years we felt like maybe now we need to shift our focus was we, we, we weren't able to kind of break through that ceiling of state to stage. Mm. Um, we felt like we gathered a lot of the ingredients, but then, mm-hmm. as you said at the beginning of our chat, um, there's, there is quite a bit of inner work that needs to happen on, you know, within each individual. And I just don't, I haven't seen it. I would love if anyone listening to our conversation knows of anywhere where this potential has shifted into a state, I would really, really like to hear about it because I just don't know of any configuration so far. Um, but we did, we felt like we were experimenting with conscious communication and conscious conflict resolution. So that might have helped why, because things were very much above board. We had a few premises, like we had an agreement that if anyone left, it would always be through the front door, not the back door, which meant that it would be that we have eye contact, we can shake hands, we're heart to heart, things are being cleared, and it's not um, sort of by pushing things under the carpet or not voicing things. So there's a few a few agreements we had like that, that that I think really helped us a lot. And also the notion that your life could become a living prayer was huge because then there's a mindfulness sort of built into daily life and and, and things like communication. And I think we, of, we often had the feeling that what we're practicing or experimenting with feels like a different kind of communicating but really one day it could become normal that it's it, it, it's actually maybe even more normal than what we call communicating wow i'm just absorbing all of this and your wisdom and experience it's beautiful thanks for giving us a little insight into that essence of what we might want to call communitas or that sense of togetherness just yeah, it's it, it's reminding me. It's become my ambrosia. It's become my guiding star. And I'm reminded of Thich Nhat Hanh's idea that the next Buddha will be the Sangha. And what I'm seeing happen, particularly in you know this millennial generation, we've generally come from you know a void of religion. Some of us have explored into the more you know new age side of things and integrated. But it's, I think, a lot of us. It, rediscovering this sense of the sacred and the numinous through each other in those moments that I was blessed to also experience a few of where you're just like everything in its right place and this just it's mystical it's it's a religious experience when you're in the right constellation and it's all just there and yeah I'm getting shivers and I'm reminded and it's making me also realize that you know just because a relationship or a community ends in a explosive way doesn't mean that the years of that joy together aren't incredibly precious and uh so then i'm also curious so um at, at the end there in hindsight what do you think might have been limiting you from that transition into the stage was there was there just novelty needed was that that group had just done its journey together or, or was there something that you now know after years as a psychotherapist and a trained psychologist that you might be able to bring into that space that would have enabled that shift that's such a rich question um 
before I get into it, I just want to say something about what you mm -hmm. just said, which is we often think of all these experiments when they don't go to the place we thought they should or could, we feel like they were failures. But I like to kind of take a step back and think of all of these attempts as, you, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if you ever have snow in Australia, like hills mm -hmm. or snow. You do. Okay. So, you know, when you've sledded down one sledding track, a lot of times there's a real groove and you just, you, you put your sled atop and whoosh down you go. But when you want to create a new track in the snow, the first few times can be kind of difficult. Like you get like a meter down or two, and then you've got to pick your sled up, trudge back up the hill and try again. And <laughs> so to me, these, all of these attempts often feel like that. Like if we think of them not as limited to that particular group and then that particular group feel like, oh, we didn't succeed, we failed. But in the big picture, maybe it was one of those sleds just making that groove a little deeper so that then the next group that tries can go a little further and then the next one, you know, so we're all just kind of like trying to create that sledding track. So one day, maybe one group will try it and, and whoosh, down they go. And um, anyways, so I just want Unless to it ends in ritual group suicide, which, yeah, maybe still helps with the sledding. <laughs> but that's, I'm just kidding. I like the, um, I like the cherry blossom tree. Uh, composting metaphor from like cradle to cradle design from William McDonough of like, like these communities, these relationships are like these wonderful flowers and then the season ends, they wilt and die. And yeah, hopefully that nutrient can like feed us for our, our next iteration. And yeah, I'm glad you highlight that because that's a, that's a big one in so many aspects of life and self that if we can really look through that lens, we can, we can move forward with grace as opposed to holding on even subconsciously to a lot of uh, the hurts from the past, which limit us trusting and loving again. Right. So thank you. Yeah. 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 And I actually, maybe I'll highlight it even more because I actually think um, for any future experiments, the, the notion that we need to somehow be, almost close to perfect for it to work is actually mm. a big trip up. So I much prefer to be smart about the notion that of course we will trip up. Of course we will make mistakes. Of course we'll feel jammed and stuck at times. Of course there will be misunderstandings. So if we assume that ahead of time and then we create a culture together that actually can handle that, that to me feels a lot more sturdy. It's a bit like, you know, if you think of, of a toddler learning how to walk hmm. and the toddler just wants to walk. And every time they fall, they would be um, feeling like they failed and this is never going to work and, you know, kind of beat themselves up around it. Instead going to learn how to walk, you actually have to fall over probably hundreds of times. And then you look at an actual toddler and it's kind of brilliant. I mean, they trip like how many times a day, but they don't, sit on the carpet and chide themselves and shame themselves and go, oh man, I'm never going to get this. And this is, you know, they, it's like their brains register very quickly. What happened? Did I trip on the carpet edge? You know, like literally like click, 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 like what happened? And then it's almost like, you know, shake the dust off your knees, get back up and keep going. So there's something anti-fragile or resilient that I think we can really nurture in ourselves of, how do we deal with the very predictable likelihood that there will be stumbling blocks and, but they don't need to be the end of the game kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love that. And now I want to get back to what you said, but I've actually. Yeah. Back to the rich question. Okay, you're, well, you're not well, avoiding well, it, are you, Miriam? 
I'm so sorry that I actually forgot. So was it about how things ended or? It was. Looking back with the 2020 vision of hindsight with all your yeah. new rich experience. Yeah, you're remembering now. Yeah. yeah. I think it's yeah. like what 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 caused it to come apart or what maybe could you alter to yeah. have made it a stage level integration yes. rather yeah, than just good, states you were hitting. So I think where I'm mm-hmm. standing at now and and I think this was quite apparent at the time. So we were a collection of individuals that resonated with this potential, with this vision. Lovely group. I mean, they are still dear friends. Some I see quite frequently, others once a year. But there's a sense of kinship in the long term, you know, because it, it was a really deep experience together. Um, but we were also at different places in our lives. And if you think of the arc of development, um, you know, in we move from a pre-egoic state, like when we're born, where we're just immersed in and connected, like we're in an unconscious state of oneness really with everything. And then we start differentiating, right? When we're around six months, maybe a little earlier, we start noticing physically that we're separate. Like, you know, we might be biting on our finger and then notice it's different than when we bite on our mom's finger. Um, And then around eight, nine, 10 months, it's an emotional separation. And then around 15 to 17 months, it's more of a cognitive separation, right? When you get the me, this is mine, here I am. And it's a thrilling moment, but it can also be quite daunting. So you go from that pre-egoic phase to then starting to go, oh, I'm separate, which is awesome. Here I am. I have my will and I'm saying no and I'm saying yes. Um, But also there can be a, a, a sense of, oh, my goodness, I'm separate. This is scary, you know? And so I think then we start building this kind of, exterior self like this constructed what you could call ego self which often gets a bad rap i actually think it's a very healthy um piece of our survival and thriving in these bodies on this earth it just depends how thick and how fully identified we get with this constructed sense of self and ideally as kids we're parented in a way where our parents remember our authentic true self that's underneath all that that was already there when we were born whether you call that essence or soul, it's already whole, doesn't need to get developed, constructed. And ideally, they have the capacity and the insight to connect with that deeper self all the way through and up while the more constructed self gets built so that the child doesn't actually lose touch with who they really are. I mean, that is mm. a big premise of my work with parents and my course, Parenting as a Spiritual Practice, is to do that twofold accompanying of helping children build a lightweight Um, pleasant ego self uh, that they're in right relationship to because they also have a relationship with their authentic self that they have never lost even if it sometimes Mm. is faded in and out um that's such important work wow right yeah yeah it's kind of starting (laughs) from the beginning there right but often when you're doing communitas or any kind of community village building you're working with people who've had more or less that kind of accompaniment and sometimes have completely lost touch with their true selves and are just rediscovering um so so but then from that uh, i think ken wilbur in one of his books he calls that the outward arc and then there's one point you sort of feel like you run the course of that outside self you know you literally go i can keep pushing my biography my my all my identities but i get these glimpses maybe when i'm dancing or when i'm deeply immersed in something or when i'm praying or meditating or when i'm 
up in the mountains, um, I get a sense of that deeper self that I am. And I know that that's actually the path forward. And so it's not about canceling out or killing or destroying the ego, which is often talked about, I think, in a very, um, I think, one-sided version of spirituality. And it's more about integrating, having perspective on it and finding right relationships. So it's a, it's a, we're often more caught in this case of mistaken identity. Like we literally think we are that outside self, but we may realize over time that actually that's not who we are. And so then we have a shift in relationship to it and it's not like it disappears. It's still useful. We're fragile, sensitive creatures. And when we're out in the world, sometimes it's useful to have that exterior self to protect us and to survive. Like it's, it's a real drive to survive, but it does have as part of its essence that I'm separate from you. And that can become really pernicious and ultimately be, you're against me, I'm against you. We're separate, right? And that's that competitive, rivalrous thing that trips up all these communal attempts, ultimately, in my view. So I kind of did that whole preamble because I feel like in our Morningstar community, people were at different places with that. Some had already pretty much done a lot of work in that outward arc and were really ready for the inward arc, which is really the very ripe edge for what we're talking about. Others just had um, a real resonance with the potential. But in a way, they were still like, I think it's, uh, I don't know if it was the Buddha, I think it was, you know, you have to become somebody before you become nobody. I think some some of the individuals were still, they were almost more pre-egoic still. Well, they had a very soft ego. And developmentally, it wasn't actually right for them to start dropping that identity is actually they still in their development still needed to build more of that identity. And I know some of them still, and they're still in that process in mm-hmm. a beautiful way, right? They're building mm. ego cells, but that's yeah. the journey they're at. So I, I think that was part of it is we had a collection of really lovely, really decent, good willing people, but not all of us were at that same place of, uh, ripeness, readiness, maturity, where the, the, the right next step is actually that which is needed for, um, you know, m- my experience of communitas, which is you get pretty agile and good at noticing which self you're coming from within yourself at any moment. You, you kind of know, you know, somatically, you know, emotionally, you know, you know, you, you know the flavor of who you are and someone can say, are you in your outside self or your inside? And, and we can flip back and forth within seconds or milliseconds, but you get pretty good at noticing that. And, and then once Where you are you now, what percentage outside and inside of you, are you rocking right now, Miriam? Are you that good? Can you pinpoint it to a decibel point? No, I could not. <laughs> I can say that, um, there's a restfulness, there's a ease, there's a relaxation that is present when um, when I'm just sitting in my inner home. Mm. Because I, I do find that when I'm not, you know, I'm trying too hard or I'm more self-concerned. So, you know, things like that. And I do know that it feels different in the body. Um, mm. Please carry on. I, I was enjoying yeah. the momentum you were unfurling yeah. through. Um, okay, where was I there? So yes, I think the first step is, are you at a place in your life where you have become quite good at that distinction, in a way that intrapersonal discernment, not just theoretically, because I remember getting that distinction in my, you know, 
when I was like 20, 21, 22. I got it theoretically, but by gosh, I didn't yet really get it. It was a very humbling experience to actually start seeing myself more fully when I was in my ego self. Um, you know, that was very different when I actually tasted that and I was like, holy, that's, yeah, I actually, as lovely as I might appear, I am actually completely self-centered when I'm in that self mm-hmm. for, for good reasons, for developmentally really good reasons. So it's mm-hmm. not, not to bash it, but just to recognize it for what it is in our ego self, we are ultimately self-centered. Um, we might as well admit it. <laughs> Safety oriented. Yeah, exactly. Survival. Survival. Yeah. Biased. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And that's where that rivalness comes up. Um, so first the, the, the capacity to even discern, but it needs to happen in the right readiness. And of course, some people have slower paths and some people have more quickened paths. So there's a variety there. There's a variety in temperament. There's a variety in even a person's dharma. Like for some people, you know, maybe their path is actually never to get to that point where they feel so tired of the outer arc that they're ready to venture into the inner. And maybe it happens on their deathbed or maybe after that, right? Who's to say? I mean, Mm -hmm. and some people, midlife crisis, that's a good moment too. Um, But I do think that there are more and more people who are waking up to that earlier and earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is promising, but you can't speed it up. It's like if you had a flower bud and you're like, you have to blossom and you start pulling at the petals and like, you can't force that to happen. Um, so anyways, once you have, uh, uh, you get good, it's like a muscle you're practicing, you get pretty good at noticing that within yourself. Well, then, then you actually even have the possibility to make a choice and, mm-hmm. or at least even as a state to, to be able to enter communitas as a state in a way you need to notice the difference, even if not intellectually, but just, it could be just somatically. Some people have the doorway much more through a different, it's not conceptual. It's actually just. They just know, right? Some people just know and they wouldn't even be able to explain it, but they can kind of click into place and uh, and leave their ego self at least to the side or suspended or at the door, kind of like, you know, just not have that be at the forefront. Um, but then to move into the stage, which is now finally getting to answering your question, <laughs> to move into the stage, that needs to become almost like a 24-7 awareness uh, slash choice-making. And, and it doesn't mean that you can always be on or in tune, but it does mean, and when I say in tune, as in like housed in your inner home, in that regulated mm-hmm. um, soul seat. So it is kind of a psycho-spiritual thing, right? It's not just spiritual, but it really includes the psychological, in my view, and this is where my therapist perspective comes in pretty strong because I have seen circles where they're just holding the spiritual view and then they really get hit from behind um, by some psychological trip ups. So the, the, the also, so maybe I'll just add that there needs to be a maturity also around knowing what dysregulates oneself. What are the triggers? How can I recalibrate and, and regulate myself ever quicker, right? At the beginning, it might take me a week if it was a big trigger or a month, but then it might speed up and I can recover in a day or a few hours or even five minutes. Mm. And over time, um, and I can, st- I still sometimes get dysregulated and it can take me, you know, 
half an hour to kind of shake it loose and remember perspective and come back to that mm-hmm. grounded, anchored state. Um, but I have gotten better, and God, I hope so because I've been practicing for years. <laughs> a very humbling thing because it's like, oh man, I'm I'm coaching and counseling people in this, and then I can literally have a tricky conversation with my husband and feel dysregulated and watch myself slide out mm. of. And I was like, there you go, Miriam. No wonder you have to keep telling your clients this is hard. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. so humbling. But um, I do now find myself able to at least on the good days, be able to recalibrate and regulate in the middle of potential friction or conflict or disagreement. And that becomes a very resilient state to be in. So it's not that you want to cushion everything so it's all easy. You actually want to do some stress tests, which we did uh, a quick bracket. During our 10 years, we on purpose did stress tests to Mm. see how resilient we were as a whole and as individuals. So we did things on purpose like fasting together or um, hiking up a mountain uh, through the night and not sleeping or you know that, that kind of thing just to actually grow and learn and witness each other when we're under some kind of duress and not just in mm-hmm. our comfortable zone yeah um, but all that being said I feel like uh yeah the the individuals in the collective were at different places and mm-hmm. I don't even think I was ready myself. I like I I, I felt um, and I still sometimes wonder if I am ready myself now, you know, for the state to stage. Uh, because if I look at myself, like I said, it's so humbling. It's like I think what I could where I feel if I would just speak for myself personally now, I feel quite confident that if I am in a collective where this is the intention and there is a collective capacity for it, I think I have uh, a enough care that I won't sabotage the effort and I have enough self-awareness so I could not guarantee others that I won't trip up and get dysregulated or lose my 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 authentic seat in the circle but I think I could promise that I will catch it very quickly and that I have enough self-awareness to remove myself rather than just keep plowing on and in a way dysregulating the whole or affecting the whole yeah, beautiful. All it takes is one or two people to really be fully dysregulating in the middle of a really potent group space and it can really permeate out. So it kind of requires everyone at that point. Oh, gosh. So as you're speaking, I'm, I'm having so many interesting thoughts. I want to share some of them with you. So it seems there's this ah, delicious, difficult life developmental aspect to this of in our mid-20s we're that much more free energetic open naive and uh able to have these experiences but we're also we're on the outward arc the majority of us for the majority of the time at least some not and that naturally seems like it's it wants to reach a fruition. Like looking back at what happened with my community, that was the you know, median age of the mid to late twenties, and it was. I'm I'm glad it's released people to go and have that next experience. And it strikes me that we need to set up like different waves of different communities, collectives. But then what tends to happen is you either get a little jaded and you can get a bit like, well, all right, that was cool, but I think I'd rather do it with my partner and one or two other people. And really, you know, that's kind of a little bit where I've been at this last year, but then 
you also maybe you have kids or you get that next job or you realize what you're really here to be doing and you want to go and study again. So that naturally can pull you away from that context. So there's like a, you see that tension I'm pointing out of like organically tends to want us to have that peak experience when we're younger and then maybe leave it behind. But I'm also feeling this, no, this religious mystic thing that you pointed to before of like, I don't want to give up. And that this, these two things you point to, like the level of development that people are at, you know, whether they're ready for that inward arc, that intrapersonal sovereignty that you speak to. So there's that. And then I might also add the level of commitment that each person has to the project. Um, and if you get those two things in balance, I think you're in that magical place. But the complication of getting a group of 15 people at that same level of intrapersonal readiness and commitment together. I, I was I, I almost cried listening to your talk with Mike and Yuvi in the Future Thinkers podcast because it just struck me how much I'm still trying to do that now and how if it feels almost forceful, like a uh, complication rather than complexity. It doesn't feel like emergence when I'm like, all right, let's be together in this space and at the right time and stay in sync. And it's like, I'm so sure that that's, that's the way to get to that stage. But then I'm also like, ah, I don't want to force that. That doesn't feel very graceful. So I'm faced with this kind of decision of, well, okay, maybe just, be chill and accept that that might not happen in this lifetime and, and hold space for the little sprouts in yourself or big sprouts even and, and create a context for that general development horizontally and vertically so that, you know, maybe the next generation, but I also don't want to give up, you know, so there's a real like, and I feel it in you and I'm like, there's a group of us that are there and could we all just move to a place? But, you know, we've got kids and work and climate change and it's all going on. So that all comes up for me. Yeah, you, you bring up some great points. One actually brings me back to what you said at the very beginning, like could it be that the time now is right for more provisional versions of communitas? rather than sort of a stable daily life lived full-on experience and yep. you could you could be right i mean that's something steph my husband and i are constantly kind of like listening for because it seems yep. silly to push for something that's just not ready it's like pushing a rock up a mountain right so you kind of want to find that sweet spot where yes there may be challenges but like there's also a readiness um yep. and so I, I i agree with you that all, all of these efforts have their place. And, and, you know, after our 10 years, we ended up founding Next Step uh, Integral, which is a nonprofit, which moved more into an educational version of this because we felt like we still hold, hold uh, firm to the vision. That still feels really solid. But we were wondering about the readiness. And so then we moved more into holding seminars with, you know, 60 to 80 people and, and having more these provisional state experiences in groups and and um, researching and practicing different tools to build capacity and skill in these areas. Um, the thing, so so I, I I think there's space for all of it. There's space for though you know, and nothing is is not worth it. Anything. I think that the one thing to watch out for, like you said, is. If people, if it's too intense and too painful, people get cynical and jaded, and then you actually lost a lot of potential participants, and that's actually really sad. 
when we put it in the context of this is not just for fun, this is not just because it's cool or because it's sweet or because it, you know, when you actually connect this, which has been at least present in our thinking um, and sensing since we began is this is not just because, like we do really feel that we need to break through that ceiling to make it forwards in evolving. And I know this can sound, sound grandiose, but to, to, to keep evolving humanity, like it matters. Right there with you. It's yep. actually really connected with what do we do about climate change and what do we do yeah. around all the systems that feel outdated and how do we bring a metasystemic approach to change and transformation? How yes. do we transform governance? Like, all these things are actually intimately, like intimately connected with this possible breakthrough. So it's sometimes it's like I would quite love to just throw in the towel because because <laughs> it, it's it's been a long haul and it's hard and sometimes it's really disheartening. Um, mm. But it's almost like I feel like I'm not allowed to. And so I wanted to add mm. something because you said there's the the capacity or the maturity or the developmental. Uh, stage that someone comes to where they that's kind of a natural next step for them there's the commitment or the willingness the availability right that and then there's this other piece that I also feel I'm looking for as I'm sort of scanning the world and it's like I've noticed some people it's almost like they got tapped on the shoulder like it's actually part of their dharma hmm. to, it, it's like somehow when they hear about this potential it speaks to something deep in their being and once they've heard it they can't throw it out like it, it's like it's gonna bug them and I, when I hear you speak yeah. I kind of hear that too it's like oh yeah he yeah. got tapped on the shoulder <laughs> yeah. and and um and so I think it needs at least those three things because otherwise mm. I, I would really not want to sway someone off of their actual path maybe their path is to bring consciousness to a, a very particular other field of life um and not to this thing that is almost like intangible but mm. seems like at the center of things but is is harder to grasp um so i think that's a need- that's a really key one there because mm-hmm. we can right because when you get that vision you get that feeling you can bring people in i mean look yeah. at the history of cults yeah. and religions throughout time you can be like mm-hmm. step into this with me and yeah. i think maybe that's part of that developmental process of i kind of did that to some degree i imagine you did to some degree as well of like come and experience this and Maybe what you're pointing to now is that wisdom of like, all right, where's the flow and 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 what, is that person naturally gravitating towards that? And is there that sense of emergence, which, I mean, just always feels like the right way forward. And it feels like culturally and personally, we're just learning how to let things be a little rather than direct them. So yeah, and it is I, kind I of both and, you know, because I think one uh-huh. thing that Stefan and myself, in a way, we were sort of the unspoken, you know, leaders in the uh-huh. community of a decade, because some people came and went too. like, it wasn't always the same exact people all the way through 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. But we didn't want to be the leaders like we because part of the whole the whole reason for living a community was actually to find that voice that's in the midst of us and have that be the leading voice not as person or a guru or a dogma or uh, some religious script or you know and so i think in a way we 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 didn't step into that and so sometimes i've wondered well should we have more or not you know i don't know mm. i know that at the time we kept checking in and it felt like no that's not ours to do and that's actually besides the point of why we're even doing this and at the same time 
we did have a huge emphasis on everyone getting in touch with who they truly are and expressing that. Well, when you do that in a collective, one person's going to do that. And over time, they're going to go, I love what we're doing here, but I actually need to travel to India or I need to go finish my PhD. So at the end of 10 years, that was just another reason. At one point, we felt like um, this particular experiment has run its course. And some of the people felt like they like it was a very graceful unfolding in that way, too, because it was just people doing what they felt like was their true next step to do. Yeah, beautiful. I I wonder, looking back at my experience of I was maybe a bit laissez-faire, a bit uh, idealist in how light the direction that we had in our community was, and that led to quite a rigid dissolution because there wasn't those boundaries. And part of me thinks, all right, next time I'm going to, I'm going to rock it. I'm going to like, you know, Napoleon, this community into like the Renaissance. But then it's like, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. Like another part of me is kind of like, it's that start with who, that if you get into that kind of resonance, I think if there is too much of a particular focal point on a couple of leaders that points to the fact that we haven't been able to create that wordless space of shared coherence together that is really the kind of touchstone for it and i guess where i want to pivot to just to the that towards the end of the conversation is is then your experience as a therapist and and the amount of people that you must have worked with now and your insight into the human experience and how that relates i mean i'm now getting a bit of a broader understanding of these very similar patterns of trauma that seem to run through us, each of us in our own way, through our own personality types. It's filtered like through a different stained glass window. But, you know, coming to terms with shame, coming to understand developmental trauma that's going on, the disintegration between parts that's kind of within us, and the somatic aspect of often being in fight, flight, fawn or freeze and, and not even being aware of that. And and I wonder, yeah, just have a little peek into what, what you found in, in your adventures there and, and what's what's relevant to help us uh, prepare ourselves to become community creatures, as I like to kind of frame it, rather than social animals. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because when we talk about communitas, I bring a psycho-spiritual perspective to it. And when I think of my work as a counselor, I also bring a psycho-spiritual perspective. So it's just a slight weighting that's different. Mm. Um, and, of course, who I'm working with uh, in, in, in my clients could be a lot of people who are not interested in communitas whatsoever, but they yep. are on a path of transformation and healing. Um, yep. So... I, th- I think the, the, the main thing that has really become pronounced, and it's partly professionally and partly it's just living life as my own human self and in a long-term marriage and as a parent and as a friend to people, you know, just living life as a human and studying myself through all that too, mm. is, um, is just an ever-deepening recognition that we cannot hope or pretend our humanity away. Like we can feel like it would be so much more simple if we didn't have to deal with shadow or trauma or uh, triggers or cultural misunderstandings. Like it would be so much easier if we didn't have to deal with different temperaments, like that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, But we can wish that until the cows come home, it's not going to make it go away. Um, much better to actually face that and figure out, okay, how are we going to navigate that in the most graceful, elegant way possible? And, you know, it comes down to 
uh, and maybe you've heard me say this before because it, it is such a simple thing. I, f- I feel like in all the people I've worked with, the more there is a foundation of connection, safety, and love, the quicker and easier um, it is to face some of the hurdles that exist in ourselves and between each other. Mm. Um, and so we cannot underestimate that while we have these spiritual aspirations and these ideals and these evolutionary impulses and these callings from the future, we are humans and we are made up of a brain that actually has a strong survival instinct and a language that expresses itself through the senses and that registers mm. threat. No matter how evolved you are, no matter how mature you are, when you're under threat, it's still your brainstem that is activated. Thank goodness, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't mm. survive. And we, we are limbic uh, beings too. We're emotional. We have emotions and they can both give us inaccurate data at times because they're so connected with our perceptions that can be skewed, but they also give us really important information mm. um, and ways of processing and digesting and living life. Like, um, it's, it's, you know, when, when, when people say, oh, emotions are so messy, could we just not deal with those or not talk about them or just like get over with them? It's like saying, can we just get over having to eat food every day and digest <laughs> that? Like, in a way, it's part of being human is that it's one of the biggest gifts, I think, is that we have emotions and they can travel through us. And it's a way of transforming energy day to day. Um, and then there's, there is the cognition and the higher cognition and the spiritual aspirations. But to, to basically include in everything we've been talking about, the notion that there is a mammal self in us um, hmm that is much more yeah quick to flare into flight or fight or freezing or fawning and that there are emotions that move through us like storms or waves or weather patterns and can we hold that with compassion and intelligence and good tools and insight i just feel like then we are so much more prepared to allow these great ideas and ideals and visions to actually find footing on earth in real people rather than just on the page or in the conceptual realm. Um, So I think my therapeutic work has just, in a way, given me a lot of tools and care for that realm, but also a lot of hope because I do see um, people be able to literally move mountains within themselves, you know, Mm. heal, like actually change and heal and find a wholeness, which is ongoing. I mean, I, I, I say this often, it's the journey of becoming whole is never done. It's ongoing. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I really stay away from this notion of you have to be enlightened too, or you have to be perfect or always regulated. Or uh, It would be, I think there's a, a certain benchmark. It is like a baseline or a certain sufficient level that you need to be so that you know that you're trustworthy and reliable enough to not sabotage what we've been talking about. Mm. Um, but it's it's still going to have its ups and downs. There's still going to be cloudy days and sunny days, and there's going to be rain showers and thunderstorms. Um, so, yeah, I, I find I... And forest I, fires. Forest fires sometimes. And sometimes such humbling moments where you think you've got it all together. The people are really very intelligent, brilliant even, um, have have done a lot of personal growth and work, have quite a 
high sense of trauma and shadow awareness. But sometimes something gets triggered and the storm it evokes um, can take everyone by surprise. So I think the muscles uh, or the in a way, the, the choices of forgiveness, compassion, kindness, uh, not giving up, you know, these are really important pieces of the puzzle also. Yes. And so often, particularly in our community's case, it's the, the intergenerational trauma piece that can really mm-hmm. catch you all by surprise yeah. because we've all got our own amount of personal shadow that can often cloud when we're just so unconscious of how much of that is intergenerational and, and when you know big racial issues come to the surface it can really trigger some you know deep stuff and I, I'm almost tempted like for me I like the idea of of starting a new religion I'm obviously very uh wary of that language and that journey but the combination of that together coherence that you've pointed to with a dedication towards continually leaning into our humanity and bringing out different layers of that with an outcome of fully integrating as much intergenerational trauma as possible through celebration and joy and togetherness with a religious like quality that to me is like, that's it. I'm like, yeah. And I, I, I say the religion just because of the dedication and the commitment to that beyond what feels good in any particular day of like, no, I'm in this for good and, you know, maybe the group of people will change and my concepts will change. But, uh, yeah, that's still that's still alive for me. I feel yeah. like I'm like 15 years behind you in a way because I'm now at the, the point of like, well, all right, I'll get into more of an education and set up courses and the next book is like how do we become community creatures and it feels like a, a next step integral type thing and it, it's heartening to see that, that, yeah, these are the different – journeys and evolutions you go on as a community cultivator and they're all natural along the way i um and they're there ongoing. Was one thing, you know they're ongoing, ongoing. yeah because i would I, I would never tell you not to do that because for one thing how you will articulate it how you will word it could speak to very particular people in just the right way and yes. also i would assume that you are whether consciously or unconsciously you are informed by other people who have already articulated and tried yeah. i mean we're all working on the work of others right all of us yeah. and so um yeah I, I would i would always encourage anyone who feels moved to like what is theirs to do if even if it seems like it's been done that yeah. That doesn't mean anything because obviously it hasn't stuck yet. Like we're still figuring it out. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think that's that's important. There was another thing I wanted to share there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's escaped me. Mm. Maybe it'll come back to you. Oh, uh, yes. When you were talking about uh, the new religion, the way I'm mm. hearing that um, – or it connects maybe where it connects with where I'm at these days with the whole, in a way, research around this whole thing mm-hmm. is I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of attempting to articulate and practice in small configurations uh, what I feel would be a same culture. Mm. I feel like if we can figure out what is the culture which can include things like um, that it includes devotion to more than just 
you know, what's obvious and tangible. Uh, so it, it, in a way, it might have that flavor that you're talking about. But what is the culture? What is the container so that we can actually do this work in the most efficient, effective, elegant, joyful, graceful way? Um, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at now, uh, you know, what, which includes ethics. It includes just some mm. basic agreements and understandings that hopefully will always evolve. So in a way, it comes as a humble offering. But, but I'd I, like I, to hear a little bit more about that because so broadly, my journey, all right, collective of 200 people over six or seven years with little pods within it. Wow. Amazing. This is how we change the world. Let's set up a series of these around the world and they can become the foundation for a whole new culture, politics, economics. Um, And I still believe that vision, but maybe it's just happening a little bit down the line. And so now where I'm at is like focusing in on smaller groups, the smallest group possible to create that same culture which can literally be three people and you've just got less moving parts, more ability to get that matched level of development and commitment. And so pods basically. So I've shifted from focus on collectives to pods and slowly building up experience, ability, and then, you know, you can look at linking them up together, but you might not even need to do that for a while. Um, yeah. What about you? Where are you at with it right now? Well, I would actually say in a way, very similarly, um, you know, Uh Stefan and I have become quite wary of movements, you know, more and more people and let's just invite everyone and put the word out and publicize that we're building a village and all that kind of stuff, because you end up having to do so much discernment and so much sorting. And it's so hard to um, keep the precision that's necessary at the beginning. So it's like at the beginning, the, you know, it's almost like when you're building a house and those foundation blocks, if you just get those right, then it's quite easy to build the rest of the house. But getting uh-huh. those initial building blocks can be hard. And that's kind of the groove. That's the ceiling we haven't broken through yet. So I completely agree. Like, let's, I mean, sure, if suddenly 200 people are in coherence, awesome, you know, but where I'm putting my efforts is, can we just start little and sturdy and resilient um and real and embodied, like not just conceptual, but actually living, breathing daily life, that kind of, that kind of version. And then from there grow. So kind of more from the inside out in a more organic, but I think more sturdy, like uh, reliable fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's, that's cool to hear we're in kind of similar mm-hmm. wavelengths there. And, and a few other people I know, Richard Bartlett and others in, in the same work are, are in that same 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 space. I've, I saw on your counseling uh, website this wonderful little uh, little piece of writing that I want to share with you I'm curious about. So you, you wrote, if I notice resistance to change in you, which is quite a common phenomenon, even when we think we are ready to change, I will address that and we will work together to ready you for actual change. This usually involves looking at what is unconsciously or subconsciously holding you back from what you are consciously wanting and expressing. Once you are ready, it unfolds quite quickly. So I'm just curious, what does that look like? How do you work with people's resistance? And um, are you... I can just imagine, I can feel this quite like lioness part of you, but also this gentle part of you. And I wonder whether you bring both to bear. I just want a little insight into that. 
So yes, I do bring both to bear. I was going to say, I'm not the kind of therapist just sits and listens and waits for people to come up with their own points. Yeah. I really don't. Right. I never have been. I was kind of just going by my own book from the start. Because hmm. um, I was, you know, trained as a psychologist from the University of Zurich, and it was very much sort of the traditional model of you sit, you listen, and you're kind of a, a white, a, a white, a white blank slate, right? Tabula rasa. That just never, never sat for me. So, um, so obviously, I, I try and listen as deeply as I can and be informed as fully as I can by the person I'm working with in that very moment. But, but I can be quite directive. However. Um, I, to, to me, all direction or feedback or suggestion or encouragement needs to do two things. It needs to always respect the sovereignty of the individual I'm working with because I don't need to live my suggestions. They do. Right. And mm. so that is something that I articulate over and over again, pretty much in every session, you know, needs to go at their pace. It needs to resonate with them. And I know I can have a strong influence, but I really do my best to uphold and respect and dignify their sovereign path and that they ultimately know what their next steps are. Um, mm. The other piece is that I, I uh, at least aim to first, in working with anyone, build a strong foundation of connection and safety, care, warmth, humor. And so my more direct, um, challenging side comes on top of that foundation. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel very strongly about this, that the more someone feels pre-accepted, pre-forgiven, pre-loved, pre-seen, pre-heard, like already encompassed by that, and it's actually an experience thing, the more capacity there is to take quite direct feedback or uh, suggestion or encouragement or challenge without the person themselves feeling questioned um, at, in their essence. And so it is in a way, it's this twofold approach where I at least attempt to maintain and encourage and sustain an unconditional yes to their personhood and to mine simultaneously, you know, as sort of a heart to heart, here we are, two souls in these bodies, um, I'm here for you, you know, a yes to their, their true personhood, and that the, the feedback or the directives or the challenges are, are, are specific and case dependent, and um, they're about particular choices or behaviors or perspectives, they're not about them as a whole person. Mm. And it allows, in a way, to, to combine these things, right? Because we often separate them. We think either I'm going to be more that energy of yes, of open-heartedness, of connection, of enthusiasm, of celebration, or uh, I'm going to be more the energy of no, of boundaries, of direction, feedback, challenge, uh, corrections, potentially separation, potentially even conflict or contradiction. And we often see these two as, as separate. You're either one or the other. And mm. in my relational work in general, whether as a therapist or a parent or as a, or as a partner or as a friend, I, I truly mm -hmm. try to bring these together so that it's like the, the unconditional, unshakable yes to the person is that that's like the underlying vessel. Mm. And, and the other, which is like, look them straight in the eye, but with probably a smile and say, 
maybe you just haven't suffered enough yet. Maybe you're mm -hmm. just not ready to change this because we've talked about this for months now and I can see that you are eager to change it, but it's not happening. So maybe something's not quite ripe and ready in you for that and that's okay. So, but then let's get you to yeah. that place first. But the way I share it, I'm trying to kind of model it here. It's like hopefully coming across with warmth and connection and a care, not a a chiding or a, a I feel, it. I feel the warmth like and that. care. What's that? I feel it. I feel warm okay. and, and 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 I feel like I'm ready for you to like hit me with the lightning rod of Miriam <laughs> insight on the other side of it. But I think that's a really important and uh, beautiful framing that you have there because I mean that's broadly for all of us being there for each other. That's not just therapist to client. That's the basis of the communal relationship of like, I see your sovereignty and I honor it and I respect it and I have it front of mind and I'd ask you to do the same for me. And I'm here and there's a level of safety that doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing that is going to be there either way. And then on top of that, the final part of the layer cake is and I'm going to mirror you and I'm going to challenge you lovingly to the degree that feels right and that I would also hope comes back in return even though they might be at different levels and yeah that's a i can sense a lot of experience and, and wisdom in, in, in what you share there and all right maybe something i've been experimenting with it maybe reveals a bit of my shadow here but i've been like trying to engineer these like human pressure cooker situations that are going to help people transition from you could say first to second tier, which you know, but for some people is like a developmental shorthand for like this big leap that might set you up for the kind of community engagement we're talking about. And I still don't know, and I'd love to get your thoughts of whether I've actually made any difference with some of these people over the years. One or two of them seem to have made that shift to second tier. And I'm like, was that just me or is that happening anyway? And Ken Wilber always talked about how Integral never made anyone second tier. It just provided the maps for the people to arrive and understand they were there. But there's a part of me that still thinks that with the right, it's a terrible analogy. This is what I'm looking at. Like if I, if I flame throw them enough lovingly, the seed will burst. Um, yeah. Um, is that, is that? Yeah. And you know, I think, I think yes. And because I think some people, well, for one thing, everyone has their own approach and you need yep. to bring the approach that's actually authentic to you. Like you have your specific gift around this yep. kind of work and yours might be more. So those two energies of the no and the yes or the, you know, the connection safety and then the more direct. I often call yep. those, I use the symbols um, of the chalice and the sword. So you mm. might be more someone who natural energy comes in with the sword I think my natural energy comes in with the chalice. Like it is, I don't have to effort to love people just for who they are. It's like, it's like I was born with that and it's quite mm. easy. Um, and I've added into that, uh, this more direct kind of sword-like thing. My husband's the opposite. Um, you know, he has that verticality, like he lives and breathes it. He's quite challenging. He can be quite fierce. Um, yeah. And he's really had to hone the skill of bringing some softness and some, uh, like work on the delivery rather than this is so important. You know, if you think of the three, the true, the yeah. beautiful and the good, mm -hmm. so, um, you know, he, he, his, his beacon is truth. Truth matters more in a way. Like if in his yeah. temperament, 
truth matters more. And in my temperament, it would be more on the in 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 the goodness or the beauty area, you know. Yeah. And 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 then we obviously complement each other, but also round ourselves out as we develop ourselves. So I think it would be wrong to say there's one approach or there's only one right thing. I think the one thing is we can't get away with offering something that is driven by our shadows or our trauma. That's going to trip ourselves and other people out up. So that's important yes. to look into. But you can't also get away very well with having an approach that's actually not authentically you. Mm. It needs to actually yeah. be true to you because otherwise it's, it just doesn't quite, it, it's like something doesn't stick. It's not, it's it not real, stick. right? You can pretend yeah. to be this or that, but it's who are you? Like, what's your essence? What's your energy? What's your gift into this field of work? Um, and then trusting that that is the ingredient that you have to offer. And then the other yes and that I wanted to add is, I think sometimes the conditions are so wonderful that healing, like I've seen it, I remember this one seminar setting, there was probably about 80 people in the room and there was this heartful sharing from a few individuals and this one person was just sharing with such tenderness and vulnerability some trauma that he had from having been um, in Vietnam. Mm. And the there was nothing said, but the amount of love and open-heartedness and literally being with and turning towards this person um, mm. in the seminar hall, uh, the, the healing that happened was absolutely fantastic. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. And kind of immediate. Wow. Yeah. You've... So sometimes it can happen in an instant. Now yeah. I... <coughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Excuse yeah. Me. I think... What... You've you've touched on something, yeah, no problem. You've touched on something really interesting, and and in me also, like uh, I had a beautiful little integration as you were, as you were reflecting that back. This golden shadow idea of like making sure that you're because so often our gift hides our shadow, and the two are like deeply interwoven. And I think where I'm at now, I know where I'm at now, is really looking at what are my own inner achiever patterns what's driving me from my shadow that provides the fuel for that truthy flamethrower because i can also be very loving and a lot of chalice energy but that's definitely the the dominant thing and i'm like shit a lot of that is mine it doesn't mean that it's not magical but i it's my responsibility and all of our responsibility to look at our greatest gift and find the the shadow in it because not only will that increase it and make it more rounded but it will also provide a lot of integration for us as individuals right and that's it's yeah it's trippy yeah it's a really beautiful distinction because you're pointing to becoming aware of why why are you doing this what's driving it you know is it ultimately for yourself is it ultimately because you stubbornly want someone to get it because (laughs) you don't want to be alone in the getting of it is it because you're impatient (laughs) or is it really like All, ideally, these efforts are, are done in service to the other and to their development and healing. Yeah. And it's not for ourselves and for our own even very subtle agenda. And so it's like, are you fully in service to the moment? And then and then is that coming out? Because I find when it isn't, um, you know, if we want someone to change because we don't like it when they're dysregulated because it actually makes us dysregulated or 
we want them to change because we just need this coherence thing to happen and we're getting impatient and a little tired of waiting. Um, <laughs> yeah, guilty, then, guilty as charged. Then all that's of those a bit counts, the pulling, the pulling the flower bud apart and trying to do it <laughs> before it's time. So there's something about when we guide, when we facilitate, when we are directive to do it from a place of being informed by the deepest kind of listening we can access and the deepest kind of service and humility that we can fathom in ourselves. So it's not about us. It's really when, when we're in that kind of relationship, it's to be guided by, in a way, it's listening for where and who, where is the person at in this moment? Who is this person truly? And what what is their next step? Not what are the 10 steps ahead that we're aware of? I mean, we can talk about that with them. But can we just help them move just that next incremental step? And then the one after that and the one after that. Next step integral. Nice plug there. But that is, ah, I just, I'm going to sit with that for a minute. I think that's such potent and profound wisdom that you've shared so much in this conversation, Miriam. And I guess uh, tying it together is this also this feeling of like this beautiful poetic realization that we do complete each other you and your partner Steph you've got the you know different sides that you bring to it then within the community and I get really excited whenever I remember that feeling and experience it of like bringing my particular magic to the group and having it meld with other people's magic and then be balanced and that is like a reminder for me that yeah don't retreat too far into that safe wonderful contemplative esoteric individuality because you're going to miss that synergy. And we really do seem to be energetically, psycho-spiritually designed to kind of meld together in that way. And it really does feel like, uh, I would say it's like a species-like shift, like the metaphor of how the, um, the what are they, the cicadas turn into locusts or whatever that shift is where a, a species will actually change and I really do feel that like, you know, homo communal communitas or whatever, it really is like it's a next evolution and it, it's um, it's exciting. And I guess we don't need to rush to get there, but to have little tastes along the way is fantastic. And to and to be on that process together of making that a stage uh, is exciting. And it's really uh, I'm really grateful to have heard your experience and to have connected with you and um yeah, to feel a little bit of lineage, to be honest, because I'm looking for people that have done this and I'm looking to learn and, and, and you know, kind of absorb and, and sit at the feet of some people that have kind of been around a bit longer and been doing it. And, um, yeah, I feel that with you. And so to have shared this time with you is really, really special to me. So thank you. Well, I, I feel a lot of gratitude too, just to feel the resonance and feel the spark in you and feel how alive mm. it is for you. Um, you know, and I, I think it's, 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 again, it's a both and. It's like we can't just wait for it to happen and fall on our heads, and yet we can't force it. So there's a tension there, which hopefully, you know, can be somewhat of a relaxed tension. But in on the one hand, we can't force, but, but it's important that we engage, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's from our free will, our free choice, I think that this next evolution is even possible it's not just going to happen it actually takes like we said a certain degree of maturity and um, insight and self-awareness and regulatory capacity in ourselves and 
and, and it, it, it takes a choice, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't yeah. seem to be one of those evolutionary steps that's just going to happen. It yeah. feels like this actually hinges quite beautifully on making a real choice. Like it's kind of crazy. It's kind of amazing at the same time. Yeah. So it's like, yes, sit back in the sense that you can't be stressed, otherwise it's not going to work. But, but you also don't want to sit back so much that you're actually not leaning in. Yeah. So how can you hold that in a way? Maybe I, I would even replace the word tension with dynamic. How can you feel, hold, live with that dynamic where you can even be driven by a sense of urgency, but not stress? And a yeah, sense of yeah. we need to be alert and choose this, but we can't force it. Can we keep scanning the the horizon for others who 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 are in that moment with us, so that yeah. maybe maybe something can happen. We catch it when it's really ready and not like way later than it could have happened. But we also don't force it way too early. Yeah, and. The- the wisdom that you've accrued and particularly that point you, 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 you make about the not coming from a place of urgency and not being overwhelmed with stress, but also the dedication and the sacrifice, hence the kind of religious quality that I, I mentioned that when you're in the center of one of these communal stories is it's all encompassing on every level of your being. And I feel like we've been gifted blessed the last 20 30 years of you know like relative abundance for our cultural context at least to be able to you know integrate some of this wisdom because it seems like the next chapter as we talk about what's unfolding politically and ecologically around us there could be quite a rapid need for these communal structures and they're only going to be resilient if they're already imbued with the essence of what it is that you learned in that 10-year process. So I feel like, yeah, it would be nice to be poised so that we're not taken by surprise for that moment where we need to go, okay, we're also having a similar crisis here in our, in our bioregion. What's, what's, how did Miriam's bioregion deal with this? And just to have that gentle network of like, yeah, this is what we did and that support and yeah, readying ourselves, you know, this this inner COVID chrysalis that we've been in so that we can emerge now and kind of just gently weave ourselves together and, and yeah, build this new world beyond the psycho-spiritual into the political, economic, and, and, and keep a balance between those two things. Yeah, yeah, big on into that. Yeah, Man, maybe we tie it up there because I am... Um, I'm peaking with inspiration and I think I just want to sit with this for a bit and integrate everything you've shared, Miriam. So thank you so much for joining me today. A real pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Show notes are available online at www.joelightfoot.org where you can also find more information about my book, A Collective Blooming. Music by Johnny Eagle. Until next time, be well, my friends.